Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today, we are in the Torah passage. It's called uh, Re'eh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26 through 16, verse 17. And if you want to see some of the previous studies that we've done on this particular passage, you can uh, find them at halal.info slash p47. That's P is in Peter 47. You can see all the various uh, studies and notes that we've done on this particular passage in years past. One of the, the, the things that you might have noticed in this particular passage is it's addressing two key issues that we are facing and you hear a lot about in society here today. And one of which is called um, who owns what, otherwise known as you know, property rights and also known as socialism versus uh, the freedom of commerce. And that's one particular thing in there because, well, who really has rights and where do the rights come from? Are you entitled to someone else's things? Are you to look out for somebody else and to what extent? And that's in particular what you see there with the seemingly paradoxical uh, commands there in Deuteronomy 15, where it says, open your hand to the poor, but then it says, you will always have poor in your midst. Because one of the things we were talking about today is, well, why don't you just give everybody money, no matter what they do, and then do nothing. Just give everybody money, and then you'll take care of poverty. Well, we see through history, not only in this particular country from the beginning of the Pilgrim era when the Pilgrims first landed and they had their, their um, attempt to reproduce what you see there in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 2, with every, everybody had everything in common. And it resulted in a similar way that you see that Paul addressed in one of his later epistles where he ended up having to say at one point, if you do not work, you do not eat. Because that was one of the, the sad things that happens, is if you just spread everything around, that there are some people who do not see that they need to contribute back, that it is all one part of a whole, that you open your hand to your brother, but you have no right to grab it out of your brother's hand and demand it out of your brother's hand. You see that several times, and you even see it right here at the end of this passage. You give, you bring your gifts as you are able. And it's interesting is that there are some things that the, that the Lord commands as like a basic thing. These are the basic offerings that you give for sp- specific things. But then you have these free will offerings, and it comes out of your heart. That is not the specific things to say, okay, I want this and this and this and this, and that will be your free will offering. No, because what is the free will offering all about? 
free will, but also an open heart. An open heart to those around you and an open heart to God. So those two things, I think we've heard that before. It's kind of like, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Larry, you have a question or a comment? And our trust. He will provide for us what we need so that we can feel comfortable about giving up stuff that other people need. Ah, interesting. Otherwise, we would, wouldn't, we would try to hold on to it. <laughs> Otherwise, we do try to hold on to ah, it. Ah, we do try to hold on to it, yes. Very interesting point in that regard. Yes, and one of the other things that is uh, that this particular passage gets at and it's become a quite a thorny issue and you'll hear a lot of skeptics will bring up passages like this where they'll say oh you go into the land and you wipe everybody out and you're like oh well, that's what ideology is that important that you have to go wipe everybody out that sounds like totalitarianism meaning you take your idea and cram it down everybody else well this is where it comes a, uh, a popular rabbinical and biblical argumentation method that you see throughout the Hebrew Bible. You see a lot of times throughout the apostolic writings and such. And in Hebrew, it's expressed kal v'chomer, which means light and heavy. And uh, a key giveaway of it when you see it, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings is, it says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, well, how much more da-da-da-da-da-da-da? That's kind of like a classical formula of the call of a homer. And that basically is the light part, the call part, is that which you accept that you see that's a truism around you. Well, if you accept that is true, well, then how much more is this, which is far more significant, also true? If you accept this, which is light, well, then why don't you accept this, which is far heavier, far more significant. So this is where the call of a Homer comes into today's discussion and this discussion of going into the land. And uh, the, it says the Lord gives over the land of Canaan. You go in to possess it. Well, uh, one of the things that we're having an issue with today is uh, it's called critical theory, which is a, an offshoot of um, you know, Marxism is a form of critical theory, and that is basically, as the name would imply, it is you find something to criticize. Now, one of the things about critical theory is that some of the criticisms, and oftentimes maybe the criticisms may be valid. It may be a valid criticism. There's something wrong in society. But the problem with critical theory is that the solution is there's something wrong in society, so tear society down. There's something wrong with this particular thing, so tear that organization down. Destroy it. And then through the destruction process, then will come the uh, utopia. Then will come the perfect world that gets built up out, out of it. Now here comes the Kalva Homer part. So if you have atheists, Secular people were saying that there is an ideal that is so significant that to make it true, to make it come to be, you have to tear down everything that is fighting against that. How much more then 
if you have the creator of heaven and earth says, I have something that is so significant, so important, that we have to tear down the situation that's currently there in place to make this happen. Because, you know, we can, we can say, well, how really important is it to have Israel in this particular place? Couldn't they just move somewhere else? We've gone out in the desert where there's nobody else? They just moved it there? But what we have, and it's a, it's a very interesting situation because it really comes into focus when Israel itself gets torn down and rebuilt. We call those the exiles. The exiles to Assyria, the exiles to Babylon. It was very interesting when some of the brothers were reading through the book of Ezekiel. And in particular, in Ezekiel 14, there's a very interesting passage there where it talks about that out of the destruction of Jerusalem, that's coming, because that's one of you know, his, the prophet's message is kind of bridges over from a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, and then after in a part of the exile. So he kind of bridges over, you know, before destruction and after the destruction. So one of the things that you see in that particular chapter is with the lament of the prophet, well, was this really worth it to tear the whole thing down? And the Lord reveals to the prophet, look at the survivors. Look at the survivors who are coming out. Look at their deeds. Look at their actions. We call this, and phrase it another way, fruit. This is the fruit that Israel should have produced. Now, a lot of it was a bad crop. So the master gardener was coming to do some massive pruning. Massive pruning to what was planted. Fuse the vineyard with uh, Isaiah's uh, prophecy of the vineyard or use the olive tree in using the Apostle Paul's illustration. The thing that the Lord planted, there was some bad wood on it that needs to get pruned off. So that what? That you can have the good part produce good fruit. Mind you of a parable that the master told. Yeshua told about a good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. So, what happens when you have a good tree planted and then you have bad fruit on it? What happens? Kind of similar to what the Apostle Paul talks about. You have the pruning process that goes on. Now, what you see with the, with the prophet Ezekiel there is he's being shown that this is why this has to happen like this. This is why they had to go in, clean things out from the leadership, tear down the temple itself, which was to be the dwelling place of God. This is why there had to be a ichavod, ichabod, a the glory is departed. <laughs> yes, sometimes the head had to be chopped off of Israel. So, you're, you're saying, well, again, that's another question. Why did it have to go that particular uh, extreme? Because that's a little bit of microcosm of what happened to Canaan that we're reading about here to go in and clean out the land. That what had to come as far as fruit onto the earth was so important 
that it had to be, it had to replace what was there for the sake of what? A little click? Little small group of people, an in club. You know, you got to do the secret handshake to get into it. Everybody else is toast. No, it is for the benefit and the blessing of everybody over the whole world. So that is why it is so important. So thus the call of a Homera thing here. If in the secular world they can say that there are some ideas that are so important that you have to tear down what's existing there to establish it. And there's also the, the converse to the critical theory, which has popped up, which is called repressive tolerance, in that if there are ideas that are trying to work against your tearing down of society, it is good for you to repress them so that they never see the light of day. No one ever hears about them. They go away. They are shunned. They're, they're blocked from society. Sound familiar? That is the marching orders of what's going on today in social media is repressive tolerance. It was written about back in the 50s uh, with one of the critical theorists. So, thus the call of a mirror part here. So, a secular society can say that you have an idea that is so important you've got to tear down what's there to establish it. How much more then is you know, the prescription, the antidote to the poison that's here on this planet to be established and to propagate and go throughout all the earth so thus you can start to see what why you have a particular you could say tough love intervention on the planet however words you want to put to it why this sort of thing had to go this way because you look well, what is the alternative? If the knowledge of the Lord does not get established on the planet, how many passages do you hear? Well, who's going to hear it unless what? Somebody preaches, somebody speaks it. That the word needs to go out into the earth. Well, if you have the word givers, the word propagators are sick, they're not really moving forward with their, their edict, then what? What do you have to do? You have to correct the word givers, but you also have to establish that beachhead, so to speak, kind of thinking in, you know, the uh, we just had the anniversary back in June of the uh, D-Day to establish a beachhead. You have to establish some sort of place there on the earth. This place, the land, we call it, the promised land, that was the important place to be the spreading of things throughout the planet. You know, you look at the ancient world, you've got trade routes. You know, we always talk about the Phoenicians, which were relatives of uh, the Hebrews going through there. They, their ships went all over the Mediterranean. They even find them in various places. Some even find them in South America. So they went all over the place. That particular place was, you could say, the crossroad of all nations. That is why that message had to go there, and is why, uh, as we had seen in a previous passage, that the people who were there before, their iniquity had risen to the top, and they had to be replaced for the sake of everybody on the entire planet. So, yes, Kat, you had a comment? 
I just want to make a comment that I don't like the idea of critical theory or repressive tolerance because we have Parsha that we can follow. We have Torah that we can follow, always follow. As long as we have Parsha, we can follow that, you know, our Torah. Yes, indeed. So, kind of like what we you know, got a picture here of uh, this, you could say, the Valley of Decision, you might call it, with Shechem in the middle, and between uh, Gerizim and Ebal, the mountain of blessing, the mountain of cursings, and you basically have the decide, another decision point in Israel's history, which one are you going to go? Which way are you going to go? Uh, yes, Anne. No, you you say critical theory. Is it a critical race theory or critical race a, theory is an offshoot of that. Oh, it okay. it basically takes the same sort of idea. Okay. Uh, critical race theory is an offshoot of critical theory. Critical race theory says, okay, we have this uh, thing that you need to have particular um, races to reach a level that they were not at before. You provide your criticism. The criticism is there has been some oppression over time. You could say, okay, yes, there has been oppression. That's historical fact. But then you say, the systems of society are the ones that are responsible for creating this particular thing. All systems throughout time, you know, anyone who is not of the race that was oppressed is responsible. So thus, you must tear everything down to then go through the rebuild, the reboot sort of experience. The great, well, yeah, that's, a, that's another issue. But, but it is... You could say that the Great Reset is uh, an offshoot, an idea of critical theory, that you take things and you blow them up to rebuild them. Uh, the the um, socialist group over in England, I'm trying to remember what they are. Fabian, the Fabian socialists over in England, that was their idea. You blow up society so that you can rebuild it in your own um, image, you could say. <laughs> yes. The thing I'm seeing is that some of those founders of critical theory uh, may have said, well, in the Bible, God did this, you know, and he blew up those people as we, they went into, you know, into the promised land. And so, you know, they would justify themselves and say, oh, well, God did it, so we can do it too. Yes, and that is, you could say that some people take that uh, ideas to justify slavery and all kinds of other things. But one of the things that you will look at, and well, that's a part of what we're looking at here today, is um, to be careful of uh, that argument is what you call equivocation. It's, that's your 50 cent word for the day today equivocation just means you take two things and you say well they look similar thus thus they are the same well that's not logical there's all kinds of things that you can compare and say well they're not the same you know the uh, racist organizations are not the same as someone who comes in to remove groups of people that were there before why because we're talking about here what is one of the things that's specifically mentioned in our passage here today? Do not do what? Do not do the practices of the people who were there. Is that about skin color? Is that they're doing melanin checks? They're doing DNA checks? No. It's what we call ideology. It's all about ideology. What you think, what you hold to. That is what is most important. 
Because you see in the people of God, they're coming from all tongues, languages, all peoples, everybody coming together, being grafted into this. It's all about the big word ideology. It's what you think, what you hold to, what you believe, not what kind of person you are. And as we discussed in one of our previous Torah lessons, it's not about your lineage either. Because what did we see both in those Torah passages and also that we see in uh, Yochanan the Immerser, the, the herald of the Messiah, what did he say? Yes, you make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. So don't claim that this is some great thing that you have lineage from Abraham or something like that. It's not based on who you come from or who you can say is your daddy or your parents. It is, again, to ideology and more specific, who you are clinging to. Did you notice that in here in this passage? Who you are clinging to. Are you clinging to something that's against God, against the creator of heaven and earth, or are you clinging to the creator of heaven and earth? That's one of the key things that we have in this particular passage. So, just taking a, a look, and in case you want uh, copies of this, we got some copies over there on the counter, which is just a kind of a one overview of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, there are been a number of people that have seen that there are patterns within the book of Deuteronomy that seem to explain over a good portion of the book that uh, explain the Ten Commandments or seem to be structured roughly around them. So, in the passage that we're looking at here today, we're in a section that uh, covers this elaboration on the Ten Commandments, which covers basically from chapter 6 of Deuteronomy through the mid part of chapter 26. So, you say a lot of the book of Deuteronomy is about what is the Ten Commandments really communicating? What are those ten words? How are they lived out in life? So, it kind of brings a lot of the Torah instructions under groupings of ideas of what they what they mean so specifically what we're here in taking a look at here today is uh, we're looking at uh, the section we started with our last torah passage on the first commandment and elaboration on that and continuing on so the section we're looking at today is about keeping the commands of the lord and then continuing on with the with the second uh, commandment about avoiding idolatry, which is topic of chapter 12. The third commandment about avoiding blasphemy or taking the name of the Lord in vain from chapter 13 of Deuteronomy through a good chunk of uh, chapter 14. And uh, under this section of the third commandment, we'll be taking a look at chapter 13, covers false prophets and idolatrous men. And we started on this topic back when we were in the, in the passage of Ve'et uh, Hanan, uh, back in covering Deuteronomy chapter 4, because it touched on this briefly before that, and we gave a preview of coming attractions in Deuteronomy 13. And then closing out things under clean and unclean foods in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. Now, it's just interesting that we have this note here of clean and unclean foods seems to be perhaps thematically a part of avoiding 
blasphemy or avoiding taking the name or the reputation of God and dragging it down and making it common with everything else. And what you'll see with that, of making it common with everything else, is that is one of the key lessons of clean and unclean. That, and it's also something that you see in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and his vision of the sheet and those animals. Yes, Daniel. It's not, it's not un, uh, uncommon to those who argue that any, anything you want, that God undid all these things, that, were, that all foods are now, everything, everything imaginable is clean now, everything you can think of or see. Um, by itself, by their own words, by using that statement, they are blaspheming God. So it actually does work in that they don't blaspheme. Or that when they're arguing that you can eat pigs and shellfish now, because Jesus made it all better, Jesus made it all clean, that act of saying those words is blasphemous. It's, 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 so it makes sense they're all kind of tied together. And, and the act of, of maintaining cleanness is God's instruction, but arguing against it is blasphemous to him. It's, kind of, it's just a comical way of throwing them together. Yes, Jared? Uh, a uh, real-life story that kind of ties into this was when, my, when we were in Mexico and my grandfather was still alive, we had some people come over. Uh, were they Pentecostal? And they were Pentecostal. So um, uh, my grandfather, you know, if you knew him, he liked his, uh, his chingere, which is, you know, a shot of tequila. And uh, he came out with a bottle and a couple of shot glasses for my dad himself and, our, and the, the, the husband of the family the father of the family that was visiting. And uh, the guest said, oh, no, 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 thank you, brother. I don't partake. And he told him, well, just pray over it. And it will make it clean because everything else is clean. That's what you do for everything else, and it makes it clean. So why isn't it applied to alcohol? He didn't say anything. He was just kind of dumbfounded. And what was it? Fast forward a couple uh, month or a year or so, and he comes and uh, we saw him, or some, someone saw him and uh, He's, and he approached him saying, Shalom, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe just uh, an entry point of conversation or get, get people thinking a little bit. And the closing out of the section here today, uh, covering the fourth commandment about uh, keeping the Shabbat, covering chapter 14 of Deuteronomy through mid part of chapter 16. And in there, you see it talked about tithe and about the Shemitah or the sabbatical year, and also about Pesach or Passover, and about the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot, and about uh, Sukkot or the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So it's very interesting. It was like, wow, they all seem to be grouped together under this discussion about Shabbat, about the weekly Shabbat. So, one of the, the, the key things, and it's actually going to be part of a topic that we'll be getting to during Sukkot a little bit, is looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount uh, found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, uh, most cogently. Luke, there's also a parallel passage for that, but the, the bulk of the commentary there in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 touches on a lot about... You know, what is some of the famous phrases that you hear in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. 
Um, they're commonly called in theology, they call them the six antitheses. And uh, some will take that to the idea that these were, well, you've heard this from the, the Torah, well, now you're going to get something new, or this is how the Torah is going to change in this particular manner. It's kind of interesting how that kind of thinking is coming around in the theological world to the idea that uh, that's not really a correct view of what Yeshua was really getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Wasn't a total reset because people actually looked at the preamble, <laughs> the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And you're seeing commentaries start to change in the broader world of the body of Messiah. Well, there's where they're seeing that passage there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where it talks about, you know, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And like we talked about my last time up here about pleru there in Greek being to fill up, to make full, to make its, its greatness, because it's also used about righteousness. So you're not going to end or abolish righteousness. That's ab- absurd. Rather, what do you want to do? You want to fill up and make it overflow for righteousness. That is the goal of heaven. So, like we saw in the previous passage where we went through chapter uh, 6 and uh, chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, where it's talking about you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, thus, what we're seeing here with these commands to keep the commandments of the Lord is about living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So again, going back to what we were talking about at the outset of this, that this is the message that is so important that the kingdom of heaven has to break into the reality of this world, to establish this beachhead in this world, to then break out into the world from this beachhead. Because you know, if you've ever looked at the history that uh, D-Day didn't work just by landing on the beach. You know, it wasn't just about creating a beachside resort. No, you had to lech lecha, go forth from the beach into the rest of the world. Now, that's hard to do. It's hard to establish the beachhead. Hard to move forward from the place that's established. So, we have the establishment of the beachhead in the world from Israel. And we've seen throughout the history that's recorded in the Bible, all of the efforts that have been done to hold on to this beachhead into the world throughout so many generations. So we are a part of those generations that's getting the orders to lech lecha, move forward, go forth, get up, get going to move beyond just the place that was established before into the world. So, into the places moving on into the world. One of the... Yes. Oh, yes, Rose. I just wanted to bring out about uh, verse 17 where it says, Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. Yes. I've not come to destroy but to fulfill. Mm Mm-hmm. And then if you take that back to Isaiah 42, 21... It says, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. So he not only fulfilled it, 
but he magnified it because he said to commit adultery, you know, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. So that's magnifying the law. He brought it to a higher level. Yeah, which is why that passage ends with uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. A lot of people, lot of people think, though, that uh, the word fulfill, oh, Christ fulfilled it all, so we're good. We're all good yes. now. We, we can just go, go on about our business. Yeah. Christ fulfilled it all. Yeah, well, that's... But, but I think they don't, they don't study enough to know that he magnified it. He, didn't, he fulfilled it. Yes, indeed, he did. But he also brought it to a higher level. Yeah. And that's, that's also, you bring up a good point because, you know, the prophet Isaiah, you'll see people will look at the first uh, chapter of Isaiah where it says in there that, you know, I hate your feasts. I hate your festivals. And go, well, aha, uh, uh-huh. see, there was a problem with it. So now we got to reboot it and uh, come up with version 2.0 or 3.0. Just got to come up with something totally different. But what do you see through the rest of the book? What Rose just talked about, the magnifying, the filling it up. So when you get to like chapter 58 of, of Isaiah, you know, we got the time of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement coming up, that magnifies Yom Kippur to saying, you know, hey, this is the fast that I've called for. So when it's talking about humbling yourself to bring humility to yourself to see that there is something beyond yourself and that there is something higher than yourself a part of that is what it talks about in isaiah 58 you look around you see people who need help the widow the orphan are often described together in that just the vulnerable people in society what chapter 15 we're talking about here in deuteronomy about the people that are around you that you need to open your hand to see that is magnifying the law as it's uh, said there right at the end of the preamble to the sermon on the mount in matthew chapter 5 verse 20 that your righteousness needs to what lag behind you know kind of go for the bell curve on yes go go for the go for the bell curve make sure that it's uh, kind of in a Maybe it's a sliding scale. You know, you just got to get in there. Uh, there are a number of school districts that are even doing away with Fs now. So, hey, you don't even have to worry about failing. Just, uh, just do whatever you can or just show up maybe. No, it's that your righteousness has to surpass the, that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That the, basically, the people who know what God's instructions were, that says there and back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that you're supposed to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the people who know what all these words are that proceeds out of the mouth of God, okay, that's the starting point. As Yeshua talked about that with a parable, hey, that is just the beginning point. You need to go beyond that. You have to magnify it so that your deeds are coming in from the inside of you it's not just a show it's not just a front you're putting out it is who you are we call that character kind of the the dirty word that's gone into society here today about character well character is important because it is who you are when things really get bad and boy when when things get really bad and don't go as you like um, I really see 
what my character is like and sometimes is frightening. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it is because that's what it really shows. Hey, that's what's going on in the inside. So the inside is having a problem. Um, it's time to, you know, go into the proverbial repair shop and open the hood of your own spiritual life and see what's going on inside. Yeah, it needs to be, uh, to beat this metaphor to a bloody pulp, uh, you need to hook up your own spiritual life to the diagnostic computer. It needs to run a deep analysis to figure out what is going on. Because, you know, you should be getting a lot of error codes in your daily life. Lots of lights blinking on your dashboard, red, 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 red. But sometimes we just ignore them and keep driving on, <laughs> driving on until the wheels come off. Then that's not a pretty thing. Yes. Oh, Larry. I, I was just going to say when they, um, that, that verse in 15, if you replace it, it's like algebra. You replace things that are equal and the equation stays the same. So if you replace that thing where they think fulfilling means to finish it, then you've got a statement you can say, I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets, I came to abolish them. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. That's a, that's a nonsense statement. I didn't come to abolish, I didn't come to destroy them, I came to destroy them. Essentially the same thing. So that's, it's, right for, it's, it's interesting to me that that's so hard for people to get, even with their own words, that they're, what they're saying is, an in, is a nonsense statement. Yeah, well, that's that's one of those things too that's that's helpful to show that hey, um, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount being about getting to the heart of God and so to speak. Well, that is all about what you know surpassing the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have all the instructions here. Now, what are they actually telling you, and what is your life actually doing because of it? You know, because if you just kind of just have it all rattling around in your head, I mean, I've, I've met people who know the Bible far better than I do. I've read it many times, memorized huge sections of it. Don't believe a word of it, but they're, they're incredible scholars on the Bible. So it's not just knowledge. What is it? What does it talk about in there? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of You're all right, because it mentions those in a number of different ways. Knowledge, okay, you know the stuff. Good job. Wisdom, all right, you know what to do with it. Understanding, yeah, with all you're getting, get understanding. It's like, okay, you know what to do with it, that's wisdom. Understanding is why you're doing it. So you're not just how you use it. It's kind of like, you know, when you're going through math, the knowledge is just multiplication tables, addition tables. Just, you know, I know that's gone passe, but actually memorizing these things so that you can do them absolutely cold. So you got your multiplication, your division tables, you can do it all cold. That's just knowledge. The, understand, or the wisdom is okay. Word problems. Word problems are, you know, a lot of them are absurd, but some of them are, you know, sort of like real life. Um, the, the whole thing about the trains going in different directions, where they, where they collide, that's kind of uh, uh, macabre. But the idea that you take what you know, 
with math and you put it to some sort of use, like, you know, you're trying to build a house. And if you know fractions, you can make your cuts on your wood. So as, as they say, was it measure twice, cut once? Or for me, it's like measure once, cut five, six times, and then get out the patches and uh, <laughs> you know, throw the wood out and get a new one because you've totally screwed it up. So I, I don't listen to that one quite well, but it's good wisdom to measure twice, cut once, that you actually take what you know about math and put it into the world to good use. Now, the, the funny thing is, is that when I went and I took calculus, it's funny that a lot of the, the equations that you use all the time, you know, like the area of a sphere and all that stuff, that's basically, that's the cheat sheet. You know, in calculus, you go through the long thing of how they came to that equation. It's like, wow, that's amazing. That's like where you start getting the understanding where these simple little equations that you think are hard to understand, it was, there was a whole lot of stuff that went into getting that short little <laughs> equation. And that's where you start getting the understanding of, wow, okay, this is the why of this. Not just the, not just the what, not just the how do you use it, but the why. And that's what a part of Deuteronomy is. When we started the book, we were talking about, you know, the historical recounts and the variations that you have when you go back to Exodus, when you go back to Numbers, and you look at the original accounts, and then you look at these accounts, and you're like, okay, this is the understanding, what you should have gotten out of these particular situations. So each of us, you know, we got the... The, the fall festivals coming up again, and like we were talking about before, is these times when they come around again, the themes that are involved is always a good time to go back and relive these parts of our own journey, our own journey to the presence of God. Because one of the things that you get out of this, and it's a key part of what the topics are encapsulated at the end of our reading here today about Shabbat, is that your destination is where? Called the promised land, the land, and we see it mentioned there in Psalm 95, you know, entering his rest. Why is it called his rest? Entering his rest. The destination where you're going to. So where is this journey starting? House of bondage. Where is it ending? His rest. So we see that we all go through this journey. We all go through this journey. And each of us, when we get to these different waypoints in time, to see, have we actually progressed from the last time we came around to this? So this adjournment to keep the commands of the Lord, let's skip down to, um, get on to actually just taking a little bit of a recap on uh, the, the elucidation of, or the explanation, there you go, elaboration, there's a bunch of 50 cent words today. Uh, the explanation, how about that one? The explanation of the second word. And just as a recap from 
Exodus chapter 20, verses four through six, where we get this originally. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who keep um, who love me and keep my commandments. So thus, when we bring that forward, okay, that is what you have with the second commandment about not making for yourself any likeness or idol. So when we get down into the section we're looking at today in chapter 12, it's like, you know, don't look after their idols. Don't inquire after their gods saying, how do the nations serve their gods that I may do likewise? Because what does that do to inquire after them that I may do likewise? Yeah, basically you start becoming like them. You start taking those ideas and bringing them all in. Kind of like what we started. It's, it's, life is a battle of ideologies, a battle of ways of thinking, things to believe in, things you want to cling to. You know, do you have the ways of the kingdom of heaven that will kind of give you the big picture of what life is all about? Or you've got the ways of the not kingdom of heaven that will then dump those ideas into your head. So do you mix these things together? Yeah, it can be a recipe for disaster because you start mixing these ideas that are against. And one of those things, you maybe have noticed it among your own children or in in yourselves, that when you are faced up against a thing that requires greater character and a thing that doesn't require so much character, which does our spiritual gravity kind of pull us toward? The easy way. Yeah. I tell you, you know, I, I am an incredibly lazy person, and boy, the spiritual gravity is very strong with me. So fighting against laziness is a terrible battle. That's something that you look at and you're like, well, what does this character actually lead to? You get some lots of insights in the words about, you know, I, I love the that, that term, the King James sluggard. I love that one. That's a that's a great one because in the slug, and that's kind of sometimes how I feel because I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm just like just kind of oozing along on a on a stream of slime, <laughs> yes, and not really accomplishing anything. And uh, then sometimes you know when it talks about the covenant of salt, then I think again of the slug and the covenant of salt and the slug. Uh, yeah, it doesn't go it doesn't go well with the slug and the, the covenant of salt. That which is meant to preserve doesn't do so well for the slug erd. Yes, uh, Anne, we have a comment over here. Well, uh, there is a point at which uh, waiting on the Lord is not a slugger. Mm. And you do a lot of waiting on the Lord. I mean, we all do. Or yes. And, 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 that, and that's profitable. I mean, you know, you may think, oh, it's a waste of time. I'm waiting. <laughs> but it's not. Not a waste of time. 
Yeah, and that's when when the 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 command to cling to the Lord really comes in because that clinging is trust and that trust is what we call faith. It's seen as they say lay olam or over the horizon beyond which you can see to the things that are beyond your scope. And you think about how many people came before us in the kingdom of God, the body of Messiah, that didn't really see the end of what they were starting, but they went forward anyway. He went forward. You know, I think of some of my relatives who went forward onto beaches of uh, Italy during World War II. You went forward. Can't even imagine that to go forward into what could be death. So, is what you're doing important enough to move forward? Even if the struggle is strong, even if you may not make it out in the end, is what you're doing important enough? Which gets us back to what we started out this discussion here today. Is what the kingdom of God is bringing to this planet important enough for the tough love, however you want to put it, the intervention that is required? Say yes. Yeah. And as we talked about at the outset, what is it that results from it? What, well, life, yes, but what is it, well, fellowship, good fruit, and that fruit is what? Well, we, t- we talked about that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Our righteousness surpassing that of people who just know the law and, and have wisdom of what to do with the law, understanding of why the law is there, and then the change that comes with that understanding. And part of that understanding is to know the Lord better. Yes, Kat. Just learning about how intricate I feel like the biblical calendar is, you know, compared to the Julian and the Gregorian and all that stuff. And that's all a part of learning, you know, um, and I just, it's all, I don't know, I find it all intriguing, you know, and it's very difficult, actually, to learn it all, because you can even learn it by sight, which is what I believe, you know, around Sukkot, you guys tend to look at the moon and see the stars and when Sukkot's happening and all that, but anyways, the point is that it's, it's, it's an intricate part of Judaism. The biblical calendar. And it is, it is interesting. You bring up an interesting point. Uh, we're getting ready to celebrate this evening uh, Rosh Chodesh or the new moon that comes around. And that's a, a very interesting point because a lot of us get into, the, for lack of a better term, navel gazing. We just look at ourselves, get so obsessed with ourselves that we can't see anything beyond it. So thus to just look out into the things that God has created, and you see the, the, the cycle of the moon. And the moon is the cycle of the light that comes upon it as it uh, orbits around the earth. And you just say, wow, there is something out beyond us. 
So then if you just start looking up a little bit, that's why you keep seeing this, this, um, this description in the words about looking up, going up, moving up from where you are, fighting against that spiritual gravity, kind of looking up beyond the things that drag you down, i.e. the flesh, the things around us that drag us down, looking up beyond that, going up beyond that to something outside of yourself, which is a part of that passage there in Deuteronomy 15 about opening your hand. You see that there are other people besides yourself. You open your hand to the needs that are around you. You get over yourself. Now, one of the things that we talked about before about critical theory is that there are criticisms that are valid. So you may look at yourself and have lots of criticisms that you want to attack yourself. Okay, those criticisms may be valid. They may be totally invalid. But what is it that happens as a result? Do you see the, these points of criticism in yourself, then attack yourself, drag yourself down into misery, depression, thinking yourself is bad, or say, like the Apostle Paul says, who can save me from this body of death? Look up. Not look down, look up to see what is beyond yourself, that the kingdom of God is something that can get you out of this hole that you could legitimately see yourself going down. Yes, Jared. Well, that's just very interesting because that's exactly what the topic of camp was last week. (laughs) Yes, look up, not down. Because there's plenty of things in this world that are looking to tear down, tear down, destroy. But we don't listen to the lies of the world, that the, li- that the world is nothing but decay and disaster. We look up beyond that. Yes, there may be things that will decay. We get old in this world. We get old. We get sick. We die. That is just the way of things in this given world at this particular time. But that is not how the whole thing operates in the world. And we get the little insight beyond that, that the one who created the moon that we see up in the sky changing phases, the one who created the sun, the one that creates all the things we have around us, the wonders of our bodies, and the incredible, um, amazing things that our brains can do that we can conceive of God, that we can think about God, we can worship God, praise God, that we can see these things and say, okay, if this is true, well then how much more is the one who created that when the one who created that says, I will make all things new. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more disease because the former things are passed away. Yes, hallelujah, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so when you see that, what is, <laughs> when you talk about we're celebrating the new moon, we read this passage there from Isaiah 66 every month where it talks about, you know, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And every Shabbat and every new moon, people will come to bow down before the Lord to see the cycle that the new heavens and the new earth about 
entering his rest and having this time of renewal is to be a part of it. But the old things of life, the disease, the decay, the lies, the destruction, those things will be passed away. Which gets us into the topic of going into the... Yes, elaboration on the third word. Third word, or third commandment, there from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7. Oh, I'm sorry, before we move on. I was just thinking about the point you were talking about earlier about the, um, about that, um, but the lifelong practice, if you will, of um, studying Torah and all that, about our shortcomings, and when we notice our shortcomings, that should produce humility mm. in us so that we are not so worried about pointing the finger at this one or this one or this one. We should just look to ourselves and um, be humble about our shortcomings rather than pointing at their shortcomings and thinking that if I can point at their shortcomings, then I don't have to look at mine so much. Yes, and we, we saw that when we went through the previous passage there about uh, Deuteronomy 10. And it gets riffed on over there in Micah verse 6, 8. You know, he's told you, old man, what is good, justice, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is that walking humbly? Does that involve the, the trumpet, the praying loudly in the streets so that people see you? To what? As the Apostle Paul sees it. See other people as greater than you are. And again, is not to see yourself as a worm that you need to crawl in a hole and cover over yourself. No, it's to see other people. Because you know, <laughs> Messiah told this thing of you know, don't go and sit in the greatest seat at the banquet because what may happen? Yes, the the master of the banquet may come and say, ah, no, yeah, move the back. So, he says, rather, what do you do? You come and you sit in the back. And then the master of the bank will say, hey, come, sit in the seat that I prepare for you. So, we basically let God tell us who we are in the sight of heaven. And what picture do we see of that? Started from Genesis chapter 1. Created in the image of God. Male and female, man and woman, carrying the image of God forward. So that is the great picture that we get to show to the world. So on to uh, the passage here, Deuteronomy uh, 13, and basically 13 and 14, elaboration on the the third word or the third commandment. Um, Restated here from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So breaking this down, the section we're looking at in Deuteronomy 13 and 14 a little bit more, we have a section here talking about the false prophets and idolatrous men in chapter 13, and then chapter 14 about clean and unclean foods. So Looking first there at the passage and that really starts at the ending part of chapter 12 that we have here in our Bible, verse 32, uh, talking about ferreting out the false prophets. So in 
Deuteronomy 12, verse 32 says, whatever I command you, you, be, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And that's something that we heard back in, in Deuteronomy 4, verse uh, 2, about not adding to the word nor taking away from it. So why is it important not to add to the word nor take away from it? If you want to live, well, we get the answer just right after this, the beginning part of chapter 13, uh, verse 4 verses there. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart or with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. So that gives you the picture of the why it's important not to add to them. Because remember, we're talking about why is it so important to have this thing Israel in the earth? It is to bring the presence of the Lord into the earth, to be the, the, the heralds, the messengers, uh, the the true news organization for what the kingdom of God is. Not the fake news organization, but the true news organization, which is going to present things accurately to be good ambassadors, to represent the kingdom of God into the earth accurately. So the, the instructions that they have in this passage about the dreamer of dreams, someone who claims to have an instruction from God beyond what's in the Torah, be one way to, to explain that. And the presenter of signs, or the otot, and like the one ot, or sign, is the, the bronze serpent that was on the pole, or the, the copper serpent, you translate it that way, on the pole. That was a sign. Now, we saw what happened to that sign later on in Israel's history, where it became <laughs> not a sign of what it originally was, but it was a sign in a different direction. It became an idol itself, not a sign that pointed on to the one who brought the people out of the house of bondage and gave them freedom from the fiery serpents, the poisonous serpents, that, that were killing them in this plague of, of uh, snakes. No, it became something that drug them away, basically into the mouth of a snake. The snakes of different gods, that which is not God. So instead of it becoming something that was a, a demonstration of what your allegiance, what you should be clinging to, it became something that took you away from it. So, some other things that are in this passage there in Deuteronomy 13, about the insider to apostasy, one who's going to turn you away. And one of the, the, one of the reasons why the prophet Bilam or Balaam keeps coming up again and again and again throughout Scripture and the prophets 
even in Revelation, <laughs> keeps showing up again and again and again and again. Is this picture of being there straddling the fence. Yes, blessings from the Lord come through him, but also, what does Bilam also do? It draws the hearts, draws the desires of the people away, gives them the distraction, something that's very enticing to go run after, very effective distraction, very effective lure to pull people away. So thus, it's kind of like, you know, if you were to look at this, well, um, it, that should give us a warning. It's like, well, even though something, somebody has blessings coming out, great things, wonderful things coming out of his mouth about, you know, the word. We even have messianic prophecies that came out of his mouth. Yet, you have somebody who draws someone away. That should tell you to be extremely careful about where this person is leading you because you could have things that are truthful, edifying, come out of you, but if they are leading you in a different direction, wow, be extremely careful. Just on to some of the tests that we have for the prophet. So if the prophet tells you to go after other gods and to serve them, you know, and that going after, we see the, the picture there, um, that to look for a prophet like Moshe, who is going to accurately speak the words of God. So it's like, okay, Bilam might pass that test. All right. So what you have from Bilam is that this was Bilam, or Moshe, brought the testimony of God forward. Moshe brought down the tablets, the testimony of God. He was the one who was speaking face-to-face with God to reveal who God is, what he's doing, and what he wants. Okay, great. So, one of the things that you should see then is this prophet, whatever says he's going to be prophet, is someone like Moshe. Because Moshe said, there's going to be one coming after me. It would be the prophet, the great prophet, but any other prophet should be like Moshe. So, you know, maybe another bracelet you should wear is, you know, uh, what did Moshe say? Or what did Moshe do? So, to pass this test then, the true followers of God must learn well what God's words are. Because like we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Because one of the things that you see described in the Gospels is that uh, if you just live by bread alone, what may happen? It says you died in the desert. They died in the desert because they did not combine the food with what? Trust. That's the thing that you keep saying, trust in God, trust in God. It's Part of the reason why you had the fiery serpents coming along, because the grumbling. Why was the grumbling happening? Didn't believe, didn't trust in the one who took them out and was going to take them to their destination. So you get test number two about the prophet's words will point you toward the greatest commandment, and the greatest commandment being what we saw back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Hugely important part of that. So this part, this love, the ahava for the Lord involves fearing God, about following after God, walking after God, but also about keeping or shamar, guarding guarding the words, keeping watch to preserve the words. Because that's one of the key things and we'll see when we get to the fourth commandment in the way that it's restated in Devarim or Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that that's one of the key differences between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 is it's not just to remember the Shabbat but it is to what? Shamar the Shabbat to guard it, to preserve it, to protect it. So you see that Yeshua connected uh, love for God with, and love with love for the Father and observance of his commandments, one of which was to not think that he would come to abolish the law and the prophets. So that being a key thing that we talked about with the preamble. So one of the key things that we have about listening, listening to the voice of the prophet listening for God's direction, responding to his call, responding to his voice. And that responding to the call is kind of like what Avraham, Lech Laha, okay, go out, go forth. Go forth from that land and the practices of that land into a different land. And then they went from that land down to Mitzrayim, down to Egypt, and then from Mitzrayim out of the house of bondage to then you're going back to the land again. But what should be happening in each of these cases? Is you just keep getting adding to the luggage. You get the luggage that you bring from Ur, from Mesopotamia, all of the, the baggage, so to speak, from Mesopotamia. Bring that into the land, bring that into Canaan. Then you pile up the, the, the Canaanite luggage and then you haul that on down to Mitzrayim and to Egypt and then you start loading up all the Egyptian baggage to bring that back in. Wow, that's going to be a lot of baggage by the time you get back into the land. Or should you be having a, what they call a nice little cleanse each time you're moving from one place to the other? That's one of the things that I keep telling myself I should do every time I move, but it doesn't quite work that way is to just clean everything out it's like i if i haven't seen it in how many years i don't need it if i haven't used it in so many years i maybe i don't need it and to give it away have somebody else decide that they need to fill up their garage with that stuff so that's one of the things that perhaps we should take a look at is when we move from one place to the other so listen to serve the lord to cling to the lord and that's one of the things that you see describing back in Genesis about cleaving to each other. As it says there, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall be joined, davak, to his wife, that they shall become echad, or one flesh. In Genesis 2 verse 24. So, one of the other things that's described about the relationship between husband and wife is uh, yada, nice little euphemism, to know, recognize, discern, understand. So working on lots of levels, not just on the superficial levels. 
And that's one of the terrible things. When we talk about all the insidious, disastrous things that are being taught by this world, this um, effort to destroy that which came before, destroy the culture which came before. And one of the key things that is being attacked is through that important relationship between people, between man and woman, between husband and wife, being destroyed, torn down, just on a daily basis. They don't understand what things are anymore, to the point where they become so perverted that in nations like Japan, they're even eschewing any sort of relations between man and woman anymore. At all. I mean, the whole population is in retreat because their idea of what happens, the order that was instituted from the creator of man and woman in the beginning, has been so torn down and destroyed that this yada was only taken to be one thing and not a complete understanding of things, complete understanding between people that the whole situation has been destroyed. So if that is one of the greatest things that can be passed on from one generation to the next, is that these relations between people have to be expressed from the holistic idea of what they are. Because the world will try to make it one thing, and one thing only, and then take that one thing, and then drive it down into the ground, and through the muck and the mire and destroy it to the point where the next generation will just hate it and eschew it as not even something to pursue anymore. And you see that. I mean, it's bearing out in culture after culture after culture. It's starting to happen here in this country. We see Japan is well ahead of us, maybe 10 years or maybe five years. So this important thing to know is... uh, something incredibly important so when we see that in the shema to know to love that is something that is incredibly important for the next generation so with this we're going to skip down to um down to the fourth word elaboration on the fourth word which uh, picks up in deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 22 and it really just goes through the last part of our section here today. And this, uh, on the fourth word of the fourth commandment, here's the restatement of it from Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor to do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Made the emphasis on the therefore because it's one of those things where you note the importance of things. Yes. To make one more comment okay. on the prior thing. Please, um, please do. Sorry. Um, that just as you're, uh, you were saying earlier about why Balaam is his story is repeated over and over and over again, is that just as in a lot of ways Balaam passed some of the tests of the prophets, but not all of them. Mm. Um. So you think about it this way, I was thinking about it this way, that he was the anti-Moses. 
And so since, you know, the Bible tells us that Moses has told us that there'd be a prophet greater than him one day, which is Yeshua. Yeah. So that just as um, Moses is a template for Yeshua, Elam is not only the anti-Moses, but he's the template of the future anti-Christ. Ooh. Definitely. That's, that's, a, why that's a great idea. I think that's why he's mentioned in Revelation. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good idea. Good observation. Yeah, because you can see now how the instructions and the tests that we have in Deuteronomy 13 are hugely important for the body of the Messiah because you see Antichrist, Anti-Messiah, and Bilam show up in the apostolic writings and in Revelation. So it's hugely important to know what to look for because it's just mentioned in passing and we have a, a few ideas and mentions in, uh, in some of Yochanan's letters about what the Antichrist, Anti-Messiah is like, you know, about denying that Yeshua came in the flesh, among some other things. But that is a key hallmark to look forward to with the great deception that comes forward. People tend to like ideas that don't make them stretch further from where their comfort zone is. And that's one of the, the key reasons why having the glasses from the creator of heaven and earth to be able to see the world and see the whole course of society and see the movement of God on earth is hugely important because you know, I, I come from a tradition that sees the modern state of Israel as a historical and biblical anomaly, something that is not a part of scripture in one bit because the glasses of the whole scope of what Israel is throughout time and the promises that the Lord makes with Israel over time and we talked about the fruit of Israel earlier what that is a part of the fruit of Israel is the promises to Israel and the bringing those promises to reality because one of the we talked about the prophet Ezekiel earlier well one of the things you see down in in chapter 36 37 of Ezekiel is that these promises are going to be fulfilled in there specifically in the land that this would be brought back and similar to what we saw in our last tour passage that you know that Israel was not established because it was so holy so righteous this and that or so numerous that it was there because of the promise that was there forward and this legacy that is coming through Israel it's even specifically mentioned there in Ezekiel that the world will see the Lord acting to reestablish Israel, and that is a part of the fulfillment that you see the prophets talk about, that there will be a time when people will say, hey, we've heard that God is with you, and cling on, and try to find out who the Lord is. So when you look at the world through those glasses, so to speak, you see that, okay, there are things and foibles that happen throughout time. When we're going through the Torah, we see the foibles that uh, Moshe had and his failings and fallings and Aharon had. We see, you know, Yehoshua, Joshua after him had foibles and failings. David had failings and fallings and Solomon had failings and fallings. Now you see the insidious 
poison of critical theory. Because that is what critical theory focuses on. The failings and foibles and fallings. That's what's happening in our country right now. They'll look at the failings, the foibles, and the fallings and say, the whole thing is corrupt, tear it all down, destroy it. Good luck. We, it's kind of like the, uh, the Jacobin Revolution during France. We'll just blow it all up and, and utopia will come out. Fidelity, fraternity, yes. Everything will just spring right out of it. And instead, we just had, what, the reign of terror? For how long did that go on? Seven years? Yeah, it was several years. And wow, they made good use of that time, I should say. Not good use, but they definitely did a whole lot of damage in that short amount of time in the process. Well, what happened after that revolution? Right back where they started with whom? Napoleon. Oh, yeah, that was just great. So, yes, be careful. Yeah, talk about... (laughs) But boom boom talk about shortcomings, yes. So, really, be careful what you seek because it may not be what you want to see happen. And that often happens where you just take things, destroy them, have no plan of what is going to happen afterward. That's one of the the things that's happened uh, with both... Israel to begin with and with this country in particular is that we quote blew things up with our split from uh, from Great Britain but there was a plan there was the Declaration of Independence and then later on the Constitution this was going somewhere and that's with the Torah when we go through all this all the time that when The kingdom of heaven is, quote, blowing up reality and the structures of this world. This is the plan for what is coming afterward. And the key part of that plan is what we just read there with the Shema, that it would be in your heart, that this would be a change that came within you. The promise of the new covenant is that this new heart and this new spirit put within you. So, yes, Quick comment on the sisters' uh, question of the ages, I'll call it. And I'm reminded of the passage in Romans chapter 1, actually. I like when things are boiled down to brief. It's the last half of chapter 1 in Romans. Um, and I'll just go down to verses, a few verses here. It says, Though claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that look like mortal human beings, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. For this reason, the Almighty delivered them over, gave them over. The sexual impurity, and he goes into detail of what we're seeing played out today because there's truly nothing new under the sun. And he's not mocked, whatever a man sows, that shall they reap, whatever a nation sows. So to me, we're in full-blown reaping of what we've sown, all because we've snubbed our noses at the Creator. It's really that boiled down to, and that's what's been said all along. They don't even know, I think. They're not in their right minds. Common sense is no longer common. It should be called rare sense. But we're here. But let's be of good cheer, because it's all been foretold. Amen? Amen. Yeah, one of the the things that people will push back on when they say about the things that the Apostle Paul puts forward. Romans chapter 1 is basically the pattern of the slippery slope 
of spiritual gravity. What happens again and again and again? We saw it in uh, in Greece's history. We saw it in Roman history. We've seen it in you know medieval European history. We're seeing it now in our time and what's happening in a number of different nations around the world. So the one thing that's pushed back on with the slippery slope is saying, well, you know, what are you saying that the, that just because this happens, it's going to go downhill with that? Well. One of those things you could say is that the um, principle of we would call it, but probably spiritual inertia. That that basically what um, depravity in motion will tend to stay in motion until what? There's there's some sort of uh, <laughs> something happens at the at the end, you know. So we could say until so some force comes to stop it. Well, that force is the crash at the end. <laughs> At the bottom of the hill. Kind of reminds me of my uh, sledding expeditions. You know, you get on those those hills that are in, iced over. Look out. There is not really a good way to stop on the way down. And uh, the fences or the trees down at the bottom, um, yeah, they tend to work very well in stopping you. But once you get these things in motion, if there specifically is not something that is done to stop these things in motion... They will continue on from one stage to the next stage to the next stage. We see like in, in this country, they'll say, well, you know, if you accept this kind of behavior, it doesn't mean we're going to accept that kind of behavior. Even though people said, well, if you accept this behavior, it will lead to accepting this and this and this and this and this. And they go, no, no, it's not going to go like that. But the old proverb of the frog in the boiling pot, that is what happens with the flesh. You turn the heat up a little bit, you get used to it. You turn it up a little bit, you get used to it. We call it desensitization. Uh, I blew the pronunciation. Desensitization. I blew it again. Yes, desensitizing. Yeah, that one. So it's about you get used to it. And uh, what is it the Apostle Paul called that? Conscience being seared with a hot iron. You get used to it. It's like lots there in Sodom. You get used to it after a while. You stop seeing the things around you. You stop seeing the things within yourself. You don't realize, wow, I, I'm quite in a different place than I was a year ago and such. So that is why the slippery slope does go on as it does. Because there is little resistance after a while and even less resistance after a while to the continued slide and it picks up speed as it goes down yes yeah i was reminded a little bit ago about nineveh actually. Mm. a very wicked city scripture says mm-hmm. but then at that short preaching of of jonah they repented <laughs> and stopped what we would call the slippery slope yes and they had true repentance so we do see there's hope when people do turn obviously yeah for for a short time. Yeah, for a short time. Yes. Yes. Cat. I kinda just wonder though, Jeff, like what's the point of like say Iran having this ten week breakout, like they're saying in the news, right? What I mean, so what is the point then of Iran having a bomb, say, to use it and then and then say they use it, I mean what's good, what's gonna come of that? I mean if just everybody dies, I mean, there's, it, it's, 
it's kind of not the same situation, you know? It's not, I mean, we've never had something like that occur, have we? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had missiles in Cuba that were uh, going forward. We uh, nearly nuked uh, Honolulu. That was, that was one that nearly happened. We, for, the, for the grace of God, thankfully, we had um, uh, Soviet sailors who basically scuttled their own ship, a nuclear submarine, to uh, keep it from launching. They basically um, kept the missile in the tube, and it blew up the sub, and it went down. Yeah, K-19. It's a, it's a pretty terrible, terrible story. We, the, um, we even built an entire tanker ship to go pull the whole submarine up from the bottom because uh, we knew where it went down. Soviets didn't know where it went down. But we finally figured out the message was is that there were those in there who were trying to you know, push chaos, push the chaos button to create chaos in the world. And uh, just sad, but you had folks that stepped up. They sacrificed themselves, those sailors did, for us to keep the whole world from blowing up. So we just pray that, as they talked about, that those the angels, the messengers of God at the four winds to keep the winds from blowing on the earth, that pray for peace. We know what's coming. Because the Lord has told us what is going to come and what the day of the Lord is going to come on it. But unlike the society that's out there today that has been primed to panic over things, panic over the, the things that will come, we look at our forefathers and foremothers in the, in the body of God, the kingdom of God, and they've faced terrible things over the eons over the centuries. Terrible things. And they're doing so here today in many countries. But what are we given to? A spirit of fear or of strength? That we, as, as Yeshua said, you know, who do we fear? The one who can kill the body? Or do we fear the one who can destroy both body and soul? Yeah, the creator of heaven and earth. So, thus, the, the uh, message that we have to the world through the Torah, through the prophets, through the Mashiach, through his apostles, these, all these messages are here to turn this world to a different direction. A world that is continually trying to go away from the creator of heaven and earth. So, in the midst of this, we just end with... An interesting note here about the section uh, talking about the Shabbat, the covering the tithe and uh, Pesach and uh, the Shemitah and also Shavuot and also Sukkot. There in Deuteronomy fourteen through the end, um, through verse seventeen of chapter sixteen. We see this passage here in Psalm 95 uh, that says, I swear my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. And as we've gone through before in our look on Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, this little passage here is described a lot, over and over and over again. But we get the picture that this entering the land is about 
entering the, he calls it the rest, or my rest is specifically what the Lord calls us, entering my rest. Well, what is this rest that's being referred to? And different ways you could say it, but you say that this is really Israel, and this is talking about Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, Israel's shalom home, the place where there is shalom, and not just you know lack of shooting so you can reload, but this is about reaching contentment, well-being, where, you know, we see, where we talked about with Revelation and the end of that, the day of the Lord, where there's no more fighting or peace or death or destruction and that sort of thing. And we see some foretastes of this shalom home, this presence of God, where the presence of God is with mankind. And we see some foretaste of that with the, the testimony of God being presented through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. The foretaste of that with the tabernacle and the temple, as it was foretold that this, this pattern that was shown on the mountain, that the dwelling place of God would be with mankind. The foretaste of going to the land, the promised land. And not just, as we mentioned the first time, with Abram, but also with Moshe and Yehoshua would take, take them in the full way. But then also with the exiles and returning with Ezra and Nehemiah. And we see the foretaste of this also rest with the new covenant that we've talked about in previous occasions in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, that the Lord would put his spirit within us to give us a new heart and that everyone would know the Lord and that in this knowing, this understanding would come that the point of heaven is to what? Forgive iniquity and remember these iniquities no more to put them out of sight. And then the total destination of entering the rest is the messianic era where truly we have, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, where the dwelling place of God is with mankind as you see at the ending part of Revelation. So that is one of the, the great things to see at the end of this. And one of the interesting things that we see just here in closing with the uh, aspect of, uh, let's see here. Oh, yes. Let's just skip down here to the Shemitah or the Sabbath year. That one of the things that you see with these, these pilgrimage festivals is to cease what you're doing and go to where God is. So stop what you're doing stop your labor, and go to where God's presence is. And one of the key things about this Shemitah, you see in Deuteronomy 15, 15, and uh, also in verse 18, where it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day, it shall not seem hard for you when you set him free. For he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man, so the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. So one of the things that we always have to remember with this is that there was not a, <laughs> a bankruptcy system per se where you just had a credit card and you just ran up the credit card, you got the consumer loans, you got this loan, you got that loan, you got the home equity loans. She's running up the debt like this and it just keeps piling up. Well, in those days, and even in some medieval sort of modern times, 
you had the idea of, um, well, there was the point of the debtor's prison, but the point is, well, you're not really doing anything on your debt at that point. You're just sitting in jail. Well, Israel had what is named called uh, indentured servitude, where you basically had your debt was sold. You had the court determine what your debt is. Then that debt is sold and purchased by someone else. Now, actually, we have that today. It's called uh, the secondary market for mortgages. Because you may, you may have noticed, it's like, oh, you, you get a mortgage, and it's like, wait a minute, why am I getting a different lender is now sending me stuff? And then maybe a few years later, a different lender sends you stuff. Well, what happens is, is that uh, you may have a mortgage on your house from, or even sometimes cars, although that's really not a great asset to trade. But for a house, you have a mortgage by one bank, but your bank may find it more advantageous to sell that loan to somebody else. And it may be just one lender or they sell it into a big market or such, but the idea is that someone says, okay, I'm going to buy your debt. So instead of you being a debtor for one bank, you're now a debtor for some other bank. Well, this is sort of what you're talking about with this idea of servitude, where your debt that you had that you could not pay is then purchased and you are now working for somebody else to work off your debt, so to speak. But with the system that God put in there, it's supposed to be, supposed to be with a heart that's like God, limited to a time frame maximum seven years of it and you're not to be trying to find lots of loopholes and play funny business with that debt and that's what the lord says you know don't you know say hey you know it's it's uh the end is coming and so you try to play some funny business with the terms of the loan to make sure that you come out ahead no that shemitah is the time when you let the people free now why is that it says here in verse 18, it's because you were, you were servants. You were in bondage. So thus, someone who is a debtor to you, you forgive that debt. And uh, we see something being expressed like that in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in what's known as the Lord's Prayer there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. You know, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Because this is the image that heaven keeps trying to show us. You see it in the Torah, you see it in Yeshua's teachings, you see it in the prophets. It is that you realize the debt that you have to heaven and you also have mercy on other people who are indebted to you. And you discharge, discharge that debt and let them go free. So just like with this idea of entering God's rest, entering your destination, so you too see that the people who have debts to you or are indebted to you in some certain way or have something that you hold over them for whatever reason. We see like in Matthew chapter 18, you know, someone has sinned against you. That's something that's also hanging over their head. That in these particular cases, you know, you realize that you too were a debtor. That you were a debtor to heaven. You have been delivered from bondage to whatever you were into before. 
So heaven has done that for you, so you do that for other people. We've seen in Israel's history what happened when they didn't do this. That was one of the key reasons for the exiles. Because you see it kind of wrapped up there is described in two different ways. It's because you didn't observe the the land did not observe its rests. Well, incorporated with the land observing its rests was allowing the people who were indebted to you or whatever under a debt to enter the rest as well. So a part of the land getting its rest was the people that were in debt getting their rest as well. So that you know, being a you know, kind of a key thing that you try to break, and someone had brought up this very interesting observation, is that uh, perhaps this instruction to uh, not hold it over the person that you're, you're discharging from this in, in indebtedness to you on the Shemitah, on the sabbatical year, that you do so joyfully. You discharge their debt. You forgive their debt joyfully. Why wouldn't you just love a happy message from your bank going, oh my goodness, this is your lucky day. Yeah, we're, we're canceling your debt today. Have a great day. Yeah, just do so joyfully. To joyfully forgive someone. Now, one of the things that you, you see with this, this picture and someone comes up with a very interesting observation that perhaps has some merit to it is that this idea of you know, taking them to the, the doorpost and punching them with the all if they decide to stay, that perhaps this idea of sandwiching this joyful um, sending out your slave, your servant, with stuff, sandwiching it in there with this instructions about what to do if they want to stay, is perhaps to say, well, the heart of this is you should really nudge them to go nudge them to really go off on their own. Because we can see what happens with our own lives. If we are in a house of bondage, we may not want to leave. We may want to stay in the house of bondage until we are pulled out. We're maybe sort of like Lot in Sodom, where you know, the servants of God actually have to grab us by the hand and pull us out because we don't want to go. So perhaps it's a, kind of an interesting idea, but we see that happen with this, whatever you want to call it, the slave mentality where people um, just feel so obsessed by the, by the bondage that they're under that they don't want to get free. Even to what they call about the Stockholm Syndrome where you you're become identifying with your debtors so much that you just say, I want to go with them. Now, the Stockholm Syndrome is with somebody who's got uh, bad intent of why they're holding you, and then you start um, going along with their ideas of uh, their bad intent, and you adopt that. So this is more on the realm of having good intent from your, quote, captor or the one who holds your debt. Say, you need to be free. Now, get going, and we're going to give you all this compensation to get you started on your feet. So we're going to leave things out there with that as we come to a close, but just the, the picture here of the instructions that related to Shabbat and how they relate to the tithe 
how they relate to the Shemitah year, how they relate to Pesach, how they relate to, um, to Shavuot, how they relate to Sukkot. One of the things that you always get out of this is you were given something that you did not earn. I guess that's one way you could, you could put that into place. Why do we stop, cease, eat Shabbat? Because we earned it. Yeah, we earned the day off. No, we didn't earn squat. We point, look back to the one who started it all, because it says, for in six days, the Lord created heaven and earth. That's why you stop. And then with the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you stop also to remember, hey, you were a slave. We take that being descendants from that to realize we all were a part of a house of bondage at some point. And then we stop to remember the one who brings the freedom, the one who sets us apart. And in all these things to remember why do we set apart the 10th of our increase to realize who is the true source of the increase. You know, who is the true source of the deliverance from the house of bondage? Who is the true source of the testimony of the, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words? Who is the true source of wanting to give us the land and to dwell with us together, the tabernacling together with us? So we'll close things out here today with that. Um, any last thoughts before we end? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, Tammy, you have a comment. I got this text message earlier. Um, Pam, I guess, still hasn't been able to get logged back in. and so, But I think you end up skipping over this, so that's why I'm just mentioning it here at the end. Um, she was, uh, her eyes really kind of latched on to Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 14. It says, um, this is in the NIV, So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains so that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your new oil. And so, um, you know, thinking about Sukkot, you have here at the end about Yes, the water, praying for rain. Yeah, and so you think, she's saying that, you know, this, but that we really do need to think about obeying the rules regarding keeping all these festivals, particularly Sukkot. And then, you know, she says the consequence of it, you know, look how our society has denied God. We've denied his feast. Not our feast, we've denied his. And the droughts and all these things that we're having now is a consequence of that. Alrighty, well, we'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you for giving us the testimony of your servants throughout such a long period of time. And Father, we just ask that you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, that we hear your words. We learn how to put them into action. We understand why you've done them and that we change and become good fruit in the world around us. Father, we thank you for the changes you've done in us. And Father, we just pray that you work throughout the world to be change and to bring your kingdom into greater and greater presence here on earth. And Father, we look forward to that day when the dwelling place of you will be here with us.
Father, until that day comes, we just ask that you help us stand wherever we are. In the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.